Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you guys. My name is Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico, and it is a great day to be here with you all. We are continuing to go through the Ten Commandments, looking at how God reveals himself to his people, and specifically how he reveals his character through these commandments, and then what that means for us as Christians. Does it have any bearing on how we should live? Um, Today we are talking about taking the name of God in vain. And I think that this is one of the commandments that probably we have just kind of like a tiny little vision of. And the vision is probably like something that you heard in youth group, maybe if you grew up in the church, don't cuss, don't use the word God when you stub your toe or something, right? That's how a lot of us kind of have received it and understood it. And what I want to um, kind of unpack with you guys this morning is that actually the third commandment is way bigger than that. It doesn't exclude that, but it's so much bigger than that. And it will probably feel overwhelming at times. I know it did for me. As I was thinking about this, I was like, well, this is kind of everything in some ways. And it is and it isn't, but we're going to look into it. And I want to first talk about what it means to receive something. What it means to receive something, especially something that's really valuable. Did you guys have like a dream car when you were a teenager? Like a car that you just really wanted? I did. It was a Jeep Wrangler. I was like, if I get that car, then I will be cool. Cool enough to continue to keep going. And I wanted it so badly. And then I got one. I get, my parents gave me a Jeep Wrangler in my senior year of high school. And I was, I was thrilled. I had received something that at that point in my life, that was like the most, that was like the pinnacle of what I wanted. Because a car is freedom, a car is autonomy, being able to drive around, do things independently. Like, that was my vision of the good life when I was 16, 17, 18. And then having that particular car brought, like, it fulfilled my longing to express my inner self. Like, I'm rugged, I'm a mountain man, I want everybody to know that about me, so I have to drive this car. And then it also opened up a bunch of cool things. I could take a Jeep Wrangler to places in the mountains where other cars wouldn't go. And so, so much, like, I'm just showing you all the different ways that getting this fulfilled me and how much I valued it, how much I wanted it. And when I got it for the first maybe, like, day, I treated it really well. And then day two, day three, day four. And pretty soon it just kind of became ordinary. And I stopped cleaning it. I got really kind of lax on when to change the oil. And then the engine blew up. (laughs) I was like, oh, I just learned a valuable lesson there. Like when you receive something that you value, you should treat it well. Otherwise, you're going to lose it. You're going to do damage to something that you value. And this is, in a way, the story of God and how God relates to people. God has given people 
an immense gift, an immense privilege. And what have we done with it? We're going to find out. But let's read, we're going to read, continue to read all of the commandments up to this point, and we're going to be in Exodus 20, verses 1 through 7 this morning. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the ch- on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be here with us this morning. And as we reflect on what it means that you have given us your name, I ask that you would help us, Lord, that you would help us to not be familiar with the gift, but to receive it anew, as if it were the first day of receiving the treasure that it is. And Lord, I ask that you would also help us to, um, to confess, to be real about the ways that we have mistreated your name, but that we would not stay in despair, but that we would look to your Son. And look at the ways that you are remaking us to bear your name and to show it off to this world and the world we can't see. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be looking at how God has given his name, how we have tarnished his name, and then how God has redeemed his name, all as we're kind of considering the third commandment. So first, we're, the third commandment assumes something. It says, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, and that assumes that he has given it to them. And so you have to be somewhat, um, have a somewhat long memory because you have to go back to, Genesis, or to Exodus 3 where God actually gives his name to Moses. But before then... God had been revealing himself to his people throughout all of human history, hadn't he? And this is a way of revealing who he is, and that's all that a name is. A name is a way that we reveal something and identify it. So if you think, like, if you think back in the Bible, Adam names the animals. God tells him, hey, name them, differentiate them. And as he's doing that, all of a sudden, personality and the diversity and beauty of God's creation started coming to life. But God's name is different than that. Because Adam was naming all of the different animals in creation as a way of kind of differentiating them, because they're all kind of the same class. But when we're talking about God's name, we're not talking about another creature. We're talking about the creator. And so it's complicated. 
Because how can you take an infinite God and then attach a human word to identify it, to identify him? It's tricky. And this is why, if you look in Scripture, there's over 400 different names for God. But this one, the one that this text refers to, and you can tell that it refers to this particular name for God, because the Lord, the name of the Lord, is all in like little capital letters. That usually is how the English translators refer to this name that we say Yahweh. It's also Jehovah, depending on your tradition. And there's mystery in this name. Because actually how it's transcribed in Hebrew is just with consonants, four consonants. And there's mystery to it. Because the Israelites were so protective of this name, of this self-revelation of God, that they wouldn't even write it down. They just left blank spaces in Scripture so that people would know, oh, this is the divine name. And we translate this name as I am who I am. So it's a repetition, I am, I am. That's how we translate it. And so it's a way of God communicating to Moses in the burning bush as Moses asks him, who should I say has done this? Who should I say has sent me? And God tells Moses, I am who I am has sent you. It's a representation of the perfections of God, of his infinite power, his mercy, his justice, his goodness, his truth, his beauty, his grace, all of it contained in this name, and he gives it to us. He gives it to people. He reveals himself personally through it. We take this for granted. We don't think about this. But think about this for a minute. Humans are the only creature even capable of knowing God's name. He's given it to us. But he also, he doesn't just give it to us in abstraction through language. He also has made us to be his image and so his name goes on to us. Part of our physical being is representing God, and not abstractly, but personally. In this way, we are stamped out as his. And he's done it for this purpose, to demonstrate that which he is to the rest of the world, to the rest of creation, to be his image to be his stewards of creation, to demonstrate all that he is and how good he is. And so he does this. He gives his name. And the process of receiving God's name was actually kind of formalized later on in the history of Israel. And it's something that we do very regularly here. It's when Aaron is given the benediction right? After this wonderful benediction that we're going to recite at the end of our service today, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
the next verse is God saying to Aaron, so shall they, the priests, put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So all of the things, the wonderful things contained in the blessing are because we receive God's name. As he puts his name upon us, we receive him personally, and we receive his presence. So we've received this marvelous gift, and the people receive the marvelous gift. And then we get a commandment saying, don't take it in vain. Don't take his name in vain. Embedded in that commandment is kind of this almost cynical take on human nature. It would be cynical if it weren't realistic. It's that I am giving this to you knowing that you're going to take it in vain. And I don't want you to. Don't do that. But we do it all the time. We, as recipients of God's name, we then turn around and tarnish his name. And we tarnish his name in a lot of ways. The commandment summarizes it all as vanity. When we take it with vanity, when we receive it vainly, as if it were something small, as if it were light, as if it were of little consequence. And that's how the commandment summarizes that. But then throughout history, and as the people have meditated on what it means, they've pulled out different ways that we actually have done that. And the first one is one that the Heidelberg Catechism identified. It's blaspheming. And it's a very churchy word. That's a word that is, sounds like it's from a different century. And it is. We don't talk like this anymore. But we understand it. Blaspheming is to speak falsely of God. So it's to say wrong things about God. Or it can be to say things in such a way that they violate God's character. So how we talk about God is really important because he has given us his name to represent. And how he talks about himself is very careful. And he has revealed himself perfectly. And so as his images, his image bearers, we are to follow in how he has revealed himself to us. So as his image bearers, when we then reveal something that's not true about God to other people, to creation, and that can happen through what we say, what we think, and what we do, we are violating this principle. We are actually operating in an opposite way to God's design. We are communicating something about God that is not true. And so that's one of the ways. Another way is to make vain commitments, right? And this is typically in, um, in every culture this happens, but these commitments are formal commitments. They're swearing oaths. And again, this is stuff that isn't necessarily part of like our everyday life, but is incredibly important. And it's all about attaching yourself to a commitment, usually it's one of public trust and realizing like, oh, my own name is insufficient for the amount of trust that's being put into me. So what I have to do 
is I have to bring the spotlight of God's name and shine it on this commitment. And basically call God to witness this commitment that I'm making before other people and to other people or to God. And so we do this when um, we serve in the military. We do this when we serve in a position of public trust, like a police officer, you get sworn in. We do this with church officers, with deacons and elders. And we do this in marriage, when we're joining in partnership with another person and becoming one. It's a way of saying this role requires trust that I don't deserve, and so I need God's authority to come on it. And so you can do that in such a way that's very kind of flippant and glib, where you're not actually considering what you are doing. You are taking lightly the trust that is required of you, and then how that will reflect God to other people, to other creation. But you can also do this by living a life where nothing's required of you, where you never have to swear an oath. We are, you are living in such a way that people don't actually need to trust you for anything. And it's kind of a way of saying, of just rejecting the high calling that God has placed on humans. He has called us to bear his image, to receive his name, and then to demonstrate it to the world. And that happens in relationships. It happens in not just relationships with um, family, but it happens in public relationships, in friendships. And so how you live out those commitments to other people, even if, don't get caught up on the oath necessarily, even if an oath isn't involved, how you live out in those commitments, it's reflecting God's name as a person. But then add to that being a Christian, saying, yes, I formally belong to God, not just as his creation, but as his special object of love and grace. And so how you live in commitments is a way that, or don't live in commitments, is a way that you can take his name in vain. So maybe canceling on somebody just because you don't feel like doing something is more than what we think it is. Maybe not delivering on a deadline that you could have made is more than what we think it is. Maybe there's more at stake than what we first see. Horizontally, as kind of civilizations are built on commitments and, honor, and honoring commitments, but then also vertically, what does it say when God's people don't honor their commitments? What does it say about God? Well, now we're back to one. We're blaspheming him because we're communicating God doesn't honor his commitments because his name is on us. We've received it. A third way that we tarnish God's name is cursing and anger. So cursing means something different to us than it did back then. A curse now is just like a bad word that we say when we're angry. 
That's included here. But what is meant by cursing typically is calling God to actually curse someone. So being so mad and angry at somebody that you're actually calling on God to curse them. That you wish them harm. That you want something bad to happen to them. So when we do that, when we are wronged, and we call on God to judge that particular person, that is a way of taking his name in vain. Because I would imagine that if you actually saw what it meant for God to curse that person, you wouldn't ask for that to happen. But you're thinking of it too lightly. When you just say, like, oh, I wish that they would be punished for what they did, they've done, you're not actually sl- slowing down and thinking about what that would actually look like. And this comes out the internal kind of demeanor of calling God to curse, it comes from an angry spirit. It comes from unrighteous anger. It comes when we have replaced our name and put it in the position of God's name. Where now all of a sudden, it's our offense that is primary. And so what's most important is our name, individually, not God's name. And That can happen just by itself. So you don't even have to make that next step of like, oh, well then I'm going to actually ask God to intervene here. We don't typically do that. Maybe we do it occasionally. But more subtly, how we break this, how we take God's name in vain with this, is we just exist irritated with other people. Maybe we start to passive-aggressively start to sabotage other people. Maybe we just wish ill or harm would come to other people. Don't think about how you drive right now. (laughs) It'll be too much. But that's how we take his name in vain, as his image bearers. We don't think about it. We don't think about who God is and what he does when we are angry in that type of way, when we wish another person harm. And then the final one of how we tarnish God's name, how we violate this commandment, is kind of probably, at least for me, it's the one that has connected the most. Um, and it's just kind of a purposeless malaise. It's the, it's the American dream hangover. Where we have lived for ourselves. And Specifically in this country, I think that this is a generational sin where we've lived for ourselves for so long that we just, we've exhausted it. We're not excited by it anymore. It's not a dream anymore. It's like the suburbs once they've aged for 30 years and the strip mall is dirty now. And that's the life that we live. It's just a malaise. And in living for ourselves, we quickly come to the end of the purpose that that can create for us. And so our lives are just kind of dull. We're bored with them. And it makes incredibly fertile ground for addictions, for vice. 
for things that bring some kind of artificial excitement, but are destroying and decaying the fabric of what it means to be human. And you see this happening throughout society. You see this happening in your friends' lives, in your coworkers' lives. Look for it in your own soul. Is it hard to connect to a God who has made the heavens and the earth, has entrusted you with his name, given you work to do, and showers his blessing upon you, is it hard to connect that with your lived experience? With when you go to work and pull up your emails, and you start to wonder, hmm, this job really isn't fulfilling me. I should probably go back to school. Because that's where I'll find my fulfillment. That's where I'll find my purpose. Because in that, what you're saying, what you're communicating, if that is what drives you primarily, and if you are so bored with your life that you need that, you need that excitement, and so you go looking for it in a million different places, what are you communicating is, God, your name, it's not enough. I don't get excited by it. And so I'm just kind of bored. I'm like, yeah, okay. I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. So I, you know, I'll just go through the motions. I'll get a good job that pays me. I'll get a house. I'll just continue to remodel it and update it and then update it and then update it some more. Make it new every two years. Or I'll move, get a bigger house, get a new car, have another kid. All of these things we chase after, and we don't see God's purpose in them. They're not bad things by themselves. Don't hear me saying that. But when you don't attach them to God's greater purpose of proclaiming his name, of passing on his name to the rest of this world, they will always lead you into that malaise. They'll always lead you into numbness and you'll need something else. So these are just some of the ways. Now think about this. Ask this of yourself. What do you expect God to do? He has given his name to people such as you and me. He's given his name to Israel. They rejected him. They tarnish his name. It's like, okay, I'll give him a fuller experience of my name. I'll give him the divine name. I am. They build a calf. They grumble about him in the wilderness. Okay, I'll give them a kingdom that will associate them with a place where my name belongs and is preserved. They reject it. They worship idols. What would you expect God to do? Withdrawal? Can I say, all right, fine. What about to quickly and completely judge and destroy? To start over? That's probably what I would do. So many times I think about my life and I'm like, why has God not just snuffed me out? <laughs> like, why? Or maybe, maybe you think, oh, he would probably just ignore it. Like, he's good. He doesn't really need it. He doesn't care that much. So he would just ignore it. 
Or he sweeps it under the rug, lowers the standard so that, oh, like they can't meet that. Let's give them something they can handle. Let's lower it. Well, instead, God gives the one who perfectly bears his name. The Father gives the Son to bear his image and his name. God became man. Jesus is the one who perfectly, as a man, receives and lives out and communicates God's name. And you see this in his life. The first place that you see it happen is in his baptism. Well, I don't know if it's the first, but it's the first we're going to talk about. It's in his baptism. Jesus is baptized And it's weird because he has nothing to repent of. But he does it to fulfill all righteousness. And then as he's baptized, God speaks from the heavens and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God puts his name. I am the father. He is my son. Puts his name upon Jesus as Jesus is baptized. And Jesus identifies himself with the sinful people in his baptism. Another place that you see it is in what Jesus does in his earthly ministry is bring blessing. You see Jesus completely and fully embodying what it means to bear God's name because just like with the ironic blessing, and that is how God's name is put onto the people, as Jesus is walking the earth, the miracles that he's doing, the healing, everything that he does is to communicate The power and the presence of God is here. And it's working. And it's starting to intervene into a dark and broken world that has rejected God. And you start to see these redemptive ripples kind of start to very small and slow at first go out. And you see it probably most powerfully in the purpose of Jesus' life. And that's something that this week the church is kind of reflecting on a lot. Because universally in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the accounts of Jesus' life, they all are moving towards the crucifixion. The purpose of Jesus' life is demonstrated on the cross. Now this is interesting. Because in the third commandment, after he says that you shall not take the name of your Lord your God in vain, he adds, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. But Jesus was declared guilty. As he's being beaten, as he's being stoned, as he's being crucified, This is what it looks like to bear God's name. It says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He could have cursed them. He could have spoken down curse and been righteous as he did that. But that is not the image of God that he is revealing. He's revealing the perfect mercy of God. That even as it's happening, 
God forgives. That God forgives those who tarnish his name. And the centurion witnesses this. He's witnessing Jesus. And as he's crucified, the centurion starts to praise God, to worship God, to bless God, and says, surely this man was innocent. Because the purpose of Jesus' life was that the guiltless was held guilty. He was made guilty for the sake of those who have tarnished his name. And so we are the forgiven ones. We are the ones who have blasphemed Jesus, who have mocked him, called him, oh, you're the king of the Jews. You're the son of God. Why don't you save yourself? And we are forgiven. We are the ones who've taken the Lord's name in vain. And he's forgiven us. And this is where you see how God redeems his name. And it's in the Son. This redemption accomplished on the cross comes to us by faith. We receive a new nature, a new heart. And the sign of that is baptism. Our baptism. What do we do when we baptize somebody? We baptize them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We expect God to withdraw. We expect God to lower the standard. God gives us more. Because now we have the triune name of the perfect God perfectly revealed in his Son, and he puts that upon us in our baptism. And so, friends, when you are baptized, you are receiving something. The name of God is put upon you, and when God gives you his name, he gives you his presence. He gives you his son. He gives you his spirit. He gives you a heart that receives those things, that cherishes it. We receive the presence of God and his power to honor his name to proclaim it, to demonstrate it, to make it visible, to make it beautiful to this world. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, talking about the church. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so instead of blaspheming, we now speak grace and truth. We actually care about what people say about God. What we say about God matters to us because we want to protect the beauty and the power of what we have received. Instead of vain commitments, we live out our commitments as to the Lord. It's like Andrew read this morning. Instead of curse and anger, we bless and build up. And instead of a purposeless malaise, we are servants in an eternal kingdom. And so, 
as you think about this, as you think about what it means to receive God's name, and as you are convicted, hopefully, about the ways that you have taken it in vain, we all have. We have all fallen short. Point yourself to Christ. Remind yourself of your baptism. Receive again the power that it contains. Because when a church is on fire, and I know that that's a dangerous word, but when they are passionate, when they take seriously the gift that is given to them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit put upon them, they build this flourishing community. And it's a place you want to be because it's a place where you can feel and experience God's power in this world. And I know we all want that. I know we want that because we're tired of vanity. (laughs) We're tired of the show. All of us are, Christians and non-Christians. You guys saw the interview probably, went viral. It was one of their award ceremonies. I don't know the difference between them. But I can't remember the guy's name. He said, this is like Vanity Fair. And I think he was being serious. I think he understood the context of that. He said, all of this show, all of this money, all of this opulence, it's Vanity Fair. And he's referencing Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan. When this city has this amazing fair, and it looks great externally, and if you don't enjoy yourself, you get punished. But it's empty, it's hollow. And we're sick of that. We want something that has more substance. We want something that looks more like the kingdom of God. And this is how we get there. It's by looking to Christ, receiving again what he has given for us, what he has given to us. He gave his life for us, but he's also given us his spirit. Walk according to the spirit. Put to death the things of the flesh. Don't live for your name. Live for his name. That's sacrificial service. Jesus showed us this on the cross. It's blessing instead of cursing. And it's living out your commitments. So pursue those things, and you're going to start to see those ripples happen in your community. You're going to start to see the relationships transformed, and you're going to see the purpose that God has for your life in all of those things. Pursue it. Let's pursue it together. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you have given us this gift.